We are in our series entitled uh, The Upside Down Kingdom, and what we're looking at what it means to be a citizen within God's kingdom. And it means living differently than the world does. And this world has a tendency to say, if it feels good, then what? Do it. If it feels good, do it. And we become slaves to our own appetites. I'm reminded of a story that I encountered this week by David, uh, or David Wilkerson relates. He had read a uh, book by a man by the name, uh, a book by the author Thomas Cobain, or Coburn, I think. And in this book, he tells the story about a 14th century duke in Belgium, what is now Belgium, by the name of Reinald, who went by his name Crasis, which means, is a Latin word, it means actually fat, obese. And he talks about how this man was a slave to his appetite. He was grossly overweight. And like, like any royal family, there's always bound to be opposition within the family. And his, his family was no different. And he had a brother who wanted to have his, his kingdom, in essence. So he rebelled against his brother and overthrew him. And rather than kill him, he had his brother put in a prison. And it was in a room that he had personally constructed for his brother. Now, he had this room built around him, but it was a normal room. It had a normal doorway. It had windows with no locks or bars on it. And he said to his brother that you, have your, you can have your title and your property as soon as you can get out of the room. Now, the problem was is that he was a very large guy. I mean, normal people could walk right through it. But he knew, Edward was his name, knew that uh, his brother Reinald, who was the overweight one, was a slave to his appetites. So what he did was, is he offered him just succulent and delicious foods every single day. But he kept telling him, it's all ready for you to have it as soon as you can walk out the door. But his brother just kept eating and eating and eating. And rather than losing weight necessary and curbing his appetite, he ended up getting even bigger and he could never leave. In fact, he wasn't released until his brother ended up being killed in battle. And then his health had deteriorated so badly that he died a year later. Now, what's the point of the story? The point of the story is, is that many of us have an appetite. We have physical appetites that we want to eat. But we also know how the fall has distorted these appetites. Either we can eat too much or too little. We have gluttony, and then we have, we have bulimia and anorexia on the other side. Because Satan likes to distort these things. And this appetite, these appetites that we have aren't just related to food, but we're in the category and in the passage of our sexual appetites, our physical appetites. And today we're going to be talking about these appetites and how we are as citizens of God's kingdom to live within them, how we are to curb them, how we are to direct them, because the desires that we have that God had given initially were good, but like the fall, everything else have been distorted in one way or the other. And it doesn't take a genius to see that in our world today. It is everywhere. We want to talk about sexuality. We want to talk about lust. You cannot escape it. Go to the grocery store. Then you have to deal with the checkout line. Go to the gym. Go to your schools. Go to your workplace. It's become so epidemic that now even the secular world is waking up to the reality of what lust and adultery are doing. Even, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, this, uh, just a few weeks ago, GQ magazine ran an article talking about why now people should rethink lust and pornography. This is GQ, which has been really pushing a lot of this stuff. And they're saying, wait a minute, we're seeing now that it's destroying lives. And if our statistics are right, then, then it's, it's not just in the world, but it's in the church. And how do we deal with it? What does God want us to know? And how can we learn how to curb and redirect these appetites in a way that is honoring to him, that he might receive great glory and that we might increase in joy? That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we go any further, let's stop and ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, Lord, we come before you with a very, very tough, delicate, problematic subject. Lord, we know that you have made us, that you've created sexuality, you've created these physical desires that we have within us, and we know that they are good, but yet we know that they have passed through the fall, and that they are marred, and that they, we, we seek things that are against your word, 
And Lord, we know that you speak to the entirety of our human condition because you have made us and you love us and you desire to bless us with your peace and your presence. And yet, Lord, we turn away and seek otherworldly pleasures. So, Lord, please help us today to see how we can be pure, pure citizens of a heavenly kingdom that you have established in and through your sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead. And Lord, may we come to you in in all humbleness and humility, asking you to transform and use us, free us, open our eyes to see the reality of who you are and what it means to have new life and be pure in you, that your name might receive glory and that we might increase in joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right into our passage today, shall we? Because we can see that this enemy that we're going to be talking about is not an enemy so much in the world. That's an easy target. And, and yet, it, the world plays a part in it. The devil does. But the biggest enemy that many of us face on a daily basis is within. You know, the Roman statesman philosopher Cicero said one time, he, he put it this way. He said, the enemy is within the gates. It is within our own luxury, our own folly, our own criminality that we have to contend. See, he was right, because the enemy that we face on a daily basis is within each one of us. And God, as he always does, doesn't just give parameters. He always brings it down and performs heart surgery when he preaches to us. And in this greatest sermon ever done, ever spoken, he shows us the reality of who we are. And he always goes beyond what the commandments spoke to. See, the commandments were, desi- were designed to awaken our need of a Savior. That's why God gave them, to show that we are insufficient of ourselves to save ourselves, to have righteousness in the sight of God. And Jesus, though, shows that many, what many had often did, they, fi- they figured, if I could just live literally to the rules, I'd be fine. If I could just keep it perfectly, I'd be all right. But what Jesus does is is says, hey, you might outwardly do it, but inwardly, that's where you're corrupt, where you're bankrupt. So for us to understand this truth and apply it to our lives, it requires us to do this. First of all, number one, it requires us digging deeper into the seventh commandment. That's what he's quoting when he says, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. So we're going to dig deeper into this commandment, and we're going to see that, that he's speaking about adultery. Now, many of us in this room, and perhaps there are some who have actually gone to the physical act of adultery, but I guarantee that there is a great many more that have given in to this spiritual act of adultery that we see that Jesus is speaking, speaking about and speaking to. And he shows us a few different things. I want us to look at this for a moment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Now, he's quoting directly from the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. He is quoting from the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, or as we talked to our children about when, we were little, when they were little, no one comes between mommy and daddy. They didn't really quite understand the word adultery, but we said no one comes between mommy and daddy. And he's saying here, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, now Jesus does something different. Jesus expands on it. And remember, Jesus always, I mean, he was a great speaker because people would hear him and they would go, wow, a new teaching and one with authority. Now, why could he have authority? Because he was the one who had originally written it. It's just like if I've said, I mean, perhaps you've done this, you have said something or written something and someone didn't understand what it was you wrote or said, and then they have to come to you for clarification. I mean, they can come to your family member or friends, but they're not going to be at peace completely until they find out what you meant by it. Now, why wouldn't they be happy of hearing it from someone else, a friend of yours? Because they didn't write it. They weren't the authors of it. But here, Jesus is the author of this, and he is saying that you have heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, this is the intent of the commandment, that it's, he says that if any man looks at, that everyone, excuse me, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we're seeing here the anatomy of adultery it starts with this. It begins with looking with lustful intent. That's letter A in your notes. Looking with lustful intent. 
Now, it's not a shame to notice beauty. We've been, we've been programmed. God has made us to, to appreciate beauty, great works of art and music. And we can see beauty and color and all of the different shades of the rainbow and colors of the spectrum. And we can see beauty in people and we can admire it. But that's not what it's talking about here. It's going deeper. It's like the man who was, who was at the mall shopping with his wife. When a young uh, girl walked by with a very sleek, tight dress, and, and his eyes turned. His eyes followed her, and without looking up from the item his wife was examining, his wife asked, was it worth the trouble that you're in? <laughs> because she realized that he wasn't just admiring, that there was something deeper going on. Because, see, this word lust derives from the word covet and means to long for, desire profusely, long for passionately, and to lust after something forbidden. Now, I hear, often hear people ask, can I lust after my spouse? It, it, you're using the wrong term. Because the word lust is used for something that is forbidden, that you're not designed to have. You can long for your spouse, because God has designed you two to be together. But it's longing for something that is forbidden, something that is not yours by right. Now, we can see here that lust is not just looking. It's more. See, I used to hear guys say, I would hear guys say, hey, just because I'm on a diet doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. That's stupid. Just dumb. Every time I want to go look at a menu, I want to eat what's on it. And that's why God is saying here, no, no, no. This isn't looking at the menu. This is provoking something within you. And so it starts, though, looking with lustful intent, but it progresses, and what it does is it finds root in the imagination. The imagination is a very powerful thing, for good or for bad. I mean, how do you, it's interesting how people used to keep children in check, and they would bring fear into them, because children's imaginations run amok, right? And adults can do that in the fantasy world. So what happens here in this next little point is, it's, it goes next to imagining the immoral action. So it's looking with lustful intent, and then it is imagining the immoral action. That's where it has crossed the boundary. I mean, it already did looking with lustful intent, but you can look and not lust. But most, most of us cannot look and not lust. And this applies to both men and women. It's epidemic among men. It's been said that 90% of men struggle with lust. Did you know that? The other 10% struggle with lying. Okay? But according to the statistics, this is becoming an increasing female problem. I mean, it has been said that almost 90% of men struggle with some form of lust, while one out of three women definitely do. And it differs from men to women. But it is a very powerful thing that both can do. So we see that after it takes root in the imagination, it it, we imagine that immoral action. See, the most famous of adulterers was King David. King David. And, and give a great illustration of the anatomy of adultery when looking at his life. First of all, it says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, that it was in the spring, the time when kings go out to war. But he didn't. So he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, that's one way that we can avoid temptation. Do what you're supposed to be doing. Idle hands are the devil's playground, are they not? So he, rather than go off to war, he stays back at the palace. So he's not really doing anything. So he walks out on the, the, the palace you know, porch one day, and it's overlooking some of, the other one, some of the other homes that are out there. And then he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. Now, first of all, the question we have to ask is this. Why is Bathsheba outside taking a bath? Some have asked that question because they think that she knew what she was doing. And we see that she's, some people say, well, you know, after the fact, then why isn't she indicted? She is indicted as well as he is. But see, then he looks at her, and rather than go, whoa, can't see that, he just goes, hey, how you doing? And he inquires of his servants. He goes, can you find out who that is? They're like, well, that's, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He's one of your secret service agents. He goes, hmm, you bring her to me. So, see, it took root because he started thinking about the situation. And then it leads, because as soon as Satan takes a hold of your mind, he can direct it wherever he wills. And that's what he does with 
David. And then obviously he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Now while studying for this message, as I referred to earlier, I discovered this, this article by GQ. And it's interesting that on this, on this, this article, GQ, uh, this author says this, and he gives this, uh, statistic, this the message title or the blog entry, he calls it, 10 Reasons Why You Should Quit Watching Pornography or Porn. He says this, Scientists at Cambridge University recently studied the brain scans of porn addicts and found that they looked exactly like those of drug addicts. With such an inexhaustible supply of porn at our disposal, there is a growing concern that is beginning to affect our brains, our relationships, and even our bodies. This is GQ. They're noticing now that, that this lust leads and destroys us. Because it's not just the, the act of adultery, but it, what it does internally to us. Now he goes on to quote statistics from a secular website called projectno.com. It's dedicated to helping people break free of pornography. And I was perusing the site, and I read some of the statistics, realized how, how bad things are. I mean, I knew it was bad, but these stats are overwhelming. There are 420 million websites devoted to porn. 68 million daily search engines requests. The second largest porn site in the world gets 100 million views a day. And this same site is also responsible for 2% of the entire Internet's traffic. Think about that. Talk about billions of people. And that gets 2%. Just that site alone. Nearly, it says, seven, uh, 9 out of 10, excuse me, 9 out of 10 young men and nearly one-third of young women use pornography. And the largest group viewing online pornography is the ages 12 to 17. Every second... $3,075 is spent on pornography. Just in the words I've uttered, I mean, you're talking about now as I continue to go on, you're in the 20 thousands of dollar range. <laughs> 28,258 people are viewing pornography right now. 372 people are typing adult search terms. Nine out of 10 young men and nearly one third of young women use pornography. Now, it's interesting, the stats that you go with all these people in the industry, which I'm going to get to in a little bit, is overwhelming because it's in total lie. Did you know the life, the life expectancy of a person in the porn or adult industry is only 36 years old and suicide is rampant among them? It's everywhere. It's destructive. But Satan is using it to lure and entrap all people. I don't care what age you are. I don't care if you're a young woman, a young man, an old man, old woman. It, it's, it kills it is destructive. It is one of Satan's main things that he preys upon our natural desires and perverts it. He's destroying lives. Now, it's interesting that the users who make up the site project know. Note that those who use pornography have a 64% of their users reporting that their tastes have become more extreme or deviant. 36% are ashamed of them. 59% users were using pornography 4 to 15 hours a week. It's become so bad that our government now, they were talking about the SEC did a survey, the government employees are using it so much during work hours. That's the majority of when porn usage is going on between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. that they're going to have to do something about it because it's epidemic. It's everywhere. It's enslaving people by the, not just thousands, but millions. And it's spilling over not only from, I mean, in our, in our classmates, in our schools, it's, it's everywhere, all over the world now. Do you know that's our, our main, if I remember correctly, don't quote me on this, but our, our, our main product that we are exporting to the world is pornography. Think about that. God help us. God help us. What's the conclusion? That lust is bad and destructive, and for Jesus, he understood that looking with lustful intent transitions to imagining the action and is followed by doing the deadly deed. Doing the deadly deed. Now, I'm not, he's talking about it, that it finds its expression physically. That's where it ultimately leads. But he goes on. And I want to I show some of what the Bible talks about it. Because people say, hey, what does it matter what a con two consenting adults do or what a cons a, a, an adult, let them do whatever they want to do. If it feels good, do it. 
the Bible has some words about what this does to us because it eventually will find expression in some way, shape, or form. I want to show you these passages from the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 27 through 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest in his clothes and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals in his feet and not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. It's deadly. He goes on to verse 32 through 35. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. It's destructive. You know, in this Project Nose thing, they were talking about all of these young men that use pornography, and they go on to say that the only relationship that many of them have ever known because they become so obsessed with pornography, they can never have a relationship outside of it. They're saying that many of them, their only physical, rela- I mean, physical relationship or any type of sexual connection is never with a spouse. It's only digital. Because it's that destructive. And it totally warps from the inside out. He will get wounds and dishonor, for his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply him with gifts. Or Proverbs chapter 7, 21 through 27. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. His life. He goes on. With much... or. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stay in her paths. For many a victim as she lay low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Now, seeing how bad it is, what are we to do? What are we to do? Jesus says this. Look at verse 29 in our passage for today. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So, there's the solution. Line up. If that's the case... We all need to start having our our services audio and all of our signs in Braille. (laughs) Because I think almost everyone in this room would be blind. It's true. Now, does that mean that we're literally to cut off our hands? Is that what Jesus is saying? That we're to maim ourselves for the kingdom of God? No. It's hyperbole. It's intentionally overstatement meant to get our attention. And what he's saying there is, is that sin is a serious issue and it's deadly. Don't play with it. And yet we do. We minimize it. We try to label it things different than it really is. Rather than calling it sin, disobedience in the sight of God. So how are we to respond? And what is Jesus meaning for us to take away from this? He, he means us to take a radical course of action. If we're going to, in our fight for sin, we need to take a radical course of action. As Job said, and this isn't, in, I didn't put this on the screen, Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. So how do we take this radical course of action? Now, there's some stuff that I'm going to give to you now that's in our passage for today. There's some that is just found throughout Scripture, but I'm going to try to go through these rather quickly. First of all, we need to make sure that we are filling our minds with truth. Filling our minds with truth. Just like you are what you eat, you are what you take in. I know that when I've just been drinking coffee all day and I run to McDonald's and my body starts to slow down and I don't start to feel so good. It's the same thing when we take in things in our mind. If we're taking in trash, then we're going to run. Uh, I mean, spiritually, we're going to feel dirty. Now, the Bible talks a great deal about the, the purpose and reason we are to memorize Scripture and place it within our hearts. I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The importance of, of memorizing it because it starts to, to transform us. Or Colossians 1.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdoms, wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Or Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what is this? What it means is this, our minds are, 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 are part of how we, we function. That's why Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Because it's how, what we think really, really uh, affects how we live and act and love and work and do everything within our life. And when we're filling it with all of this evil bad movies, wrong websites, it's going to affect us. All of us. It is rotting us from the inside out. And it's killing us. And the thing is, is we want more and more and more. I came across a story this past week, and I I have no idea. I've never researched it to see if this is completely true. But it's how Eskimos kill wolves. What they do is is they, they take a blade and they coat it in blood of an animal. And then they freeze it, and then they coat it again, and they freeze it, and they coat it again, and they freeze it. And then they stick it in the snow, blade up. And then a wolf comes and starts to smell the blood and begins to lick it. And he keeps licking it, but as he's doing so, he's slicing his own tongue. And then the blood becomes more warm. And he's like, oh, this is good. Not knowing that he is destroying himself by doing it. See, that's what lust does. You see, we want more. We always want more. I'll just, I just need this. That's it. All I need is that, and I'm all good. It's not that big a deal. Let's, let's not make a big issue out of it. It's a one-time thing, and you keep going back, and you keep going back, and you keep going back, and you're destroying yourself in the long run. See, it's one of Satan's subtle traps. See, he has the hook of the world, but he uses the bait of the flesh. Because a hook without any bait on it, it's not a big deal. But he uses, and he baits that hook differently for each one of us. But for many of us, he's got us hooked. We're prisoners. We're trapped. Instead, we're to be filling our minds with truth. Now, how do we renew our mind? By reading and meditating on the Word of God. Now, there's a story of an old man who lived on a farm in the mountains of eastern Kentucky with his young grandson. He lived with his young grandson. Each morning, he would be sitting um, at the kitchen table reading from his old, worn-out Bible. Now, his grandson, who wanted to be just like him, tried to imitate him any way that he could. But one day the grandson asked, Papa, I try to read the Bible just like you, but I don't understand it. And what I I do understand, I forget as soon as I close the book. What good does reading the Bible do? The grandfather quietly turned from putting coal in the stove and said, Take this old wicker coal basket down to the river and bring back a basket of water. The boy did as he was told, even though all the water leaked out before he could get back to the house. The grandfather laughed and said, you'll have to move a little faster next time and send him back to the river with the basket to try again. This time the boy ran faster, but again the old wicker basket was empty before he returned home. Out of breath, he told his grandfather that it was impossible to carry water in a basket, and he went to get a bucket instead. The old man said, I don't want a bucket of water. I want a basket of water. You can do this. You're just not trying hard enough. And he went out the door to watch the boy try again. At this point, the boy knew it was impossible, but he wanted to show his grandfather that even if he ran as fast as he could, the water would leak out before he got too far. The boy scooped the water and ran hard, but when he reached his grandfather, the basket was again empty. Out of breath, he said, Papa, see, it's useless. So you think it's useless, the old man said. Look at the basket. The boy looked at the basket, and for the first time, he realized that the basket looked different. Instead of a dirty old wicker coal basket, it was clean. Son, that's what happens when you read the Bible. You may not understand or remember everything, but when you read it, it will change you from the inside out. It's a great picture. That's why we meditate, preach, focus on, listen, apply. Memorize the Word of God. So we need to make sure that we're filling our minds with truth. And secondly, we need to make sure that we are frisking our thoughts. Frisking our thoughts. 
I want you to see this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 through 5. For the weapons are of our warfare, because we're in a battle. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's what you do. This is what Erwin Lutzer said. I like his advice. He said, when that thought comes in your mind, throw it up against the wall of your mind and frisk it, pat it down, and decide whether it's going in or going out. Frisk your thoughts. Say, I, don't, I have a thought that comes in. Is it a good thought? Is it a bad thought? It's a bad thought. I'm going to have to transition to something else. So we have to make sure that we are frisking our thoughts. Notice. Next, we are to make every effort to free ourselves of temptation triggers. Free ourselves of temptation triggers. That's what Jesus is talking about. If your right hand causes you to sin, get rid of it. If there is something that you know is leading you to sin, get rid of it. Do something radical, whatever you need to do. Now, I've seen this concept shared with different men. One man took a sledgehammer to his TV. Kid you not, it was a radical thing to do. I've seen other guys in my own life, this was a struggle that I had, and I, I took this, I went outside, and I took a pair of bolt cutters, and I cut my cable line. My wife wasn't happy. But I was. Because, see, you know, Satan is, is subtle, and he plays dirty pool. Because we didn't have any of those really bad channels, but you'd get these scrambled channels, and you could hear the audio. Because Satan's trying to get in in every which way that he can. So we got rid of it. Now, I'm not saying you have to go out and get rid of your TV. Not all of you, but some of you need to do that. Some of you, it's the internet. I know one man, he said, uh, he was talking about his son. He's like, my son keeps doing it all the time. What do I do? I, I said, put a filter on. He goes, I did, but it didn't work. I said, what do you mean it didn't work? He goes, he reformatted the entire computer. I was like, throw it away. He needs it. Well, he'll have to go to school and explain that he's got a porn addiction. See what that happens. See what that does to him. I mean, it, we can't play nice in this. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a serious thing. What are you willing to do? Because it's dragging you down to hell. Are you willing to fight that battle? Are you willing to enlist the help of other brothers and sisters? Are you willing to take radical steps? And if it's young people, which we're seeing now, take control of the cell phone or get one of those phones that they can only interact with their friends in text because now you've got, you've got Snapchatting, you've got, I mean, sexting. It's epidemic, and it's getting younger and younger. It's all over. And it's out there forever. Forever. Remove temptation triggers. As the, book of, as the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I mean, it, it's the same place every single time. People say, well, it's not that bad. It is bad. It's like saying that I've got terminal cancer. Oh, it's not that bad of cancer. No, it's bad cancer. You're going to die. You need radical help. If the doctor told you you had terminal cancer, what would you do? Would you seek, I mean, chemotherapy? You would try to fight it, I would hope. Many of us are like, well, what's the point of fighting? God's saying, no, fight. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, de the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is where we not only have to remove the triggers from our own lives, but being careful that we don't do, wear, or incite our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Now, I have a thing that's in the back of the sanctuary right by the Bibles that I have made available to you if you want this, especially for the women of the congregation. Um, again, I don't want to just cite the women because men are responsible for what they do. But if the statistics are right, a great deal more men, many of women struggle than women do. And I have talked to many different men over the years. They say, winter's not so bad. Spring comes. Lord, help me. Because the skin comes out in spring. Spring and summer. And I see guys trying to fight the battle. Now again, men are still responsible. But also you don't put gas by a lit match. You don't do that. So they, we have a thing back there. It's called a modesty heart check. Now it's not saying that you have to have your skirt this low or anything like that. Okay, We're not focusing on, because those are again the rules of righteousness. And the Bible always concerns more of the heart. It's a, that's why it says it's a heart check. What is your intent? It's written by Carolyn Mahaney. 
um, and it was written for her and her, and she wrote it for her and her daughter. She enlisted other women in coming to, but it just gives some good rules of thumb because I'm finding out that some women know exactly what they're doing and there's others that, like, I had no idea. I had no idea. So it just helps. And guys, I mean, I don't, I mean, some of you, I, I don't know if you're wearing tight clothes or what because every time I see you doing it, the girls are like, get away. But guys, be sensitive to the women too. I don't know if you need to have a modesty heart check. I mean, some of you guys just need to pull up your pants or put more clothes on, okay? Whatever. Whatever works. But fight the battle and help enlist the fighting of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now next, if we're having a hard time resisting, we must make sure that we are fleeing the temptation. Fleeing the temptation. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person, uh, immoral person sins against his own body. I'm reminded of my professor, Dwight Perry, great professor. He was talking about the importance of this. He was sharing with our class of young, uh, soon-to-be pastors, and he stands up and he talks about the differences of men and women in regards to lust, and, and specifically between him and his wife. And he goes, he goes, you could come in my house. And he goes, gentlemen, you could be buck naked. And my wife walk in, she look at you and say, what's your problem? He said, but if a young woman comes in my house and she's buck naked, I got to run. I got to get out of the house. I got I to get out of there. This is, a very good, this is a good thing to do. Flee, run, get away. Just like, what did Joseph do when Potiphar's wife came after him? Now, see, this is where we see that it's not just a male problem because she saw Joseph swarm and went after him making herself available to him. Finally, he just said, I'm out of here. I mean, you could see her pulling on his coat, and he's like, get away from me. Because he didn't want to sin against God. Flee. Temptation. It's a serious, serious thing. Run. Now, I have to say that with the proliferation of pornography, the assault on marriage and the family, it is no wonder why many Christians are having a hard time fighting their flesh. I know many in this room in here, you have fallen, you've blown it, you feel trapped, and the further that I speak, the more condemned that you feel. But I want to give you hope. Because God is a God of hope. Our God is a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God who died on the cross for our sins. And he came to set the captives free. To give us new life, to give us second chances. God allows you turns because of what his son did on the cross for us. But it's a challenge that we have in front of us. And God says that we are more than overcomers. We are overcomers through him. So what we're going to look at now is how we can be overcoming the challenges that face us. Overcoming the challenges that face us. Now, I'm going to give you something that I've given you before, but I deem it to be extremely important to revisit it again. Um, and it's, the, it's, the, it's a, known as the FIGHT acronym. How you can fight and overcome the challenges that face us. First of all, the things that you have to do is figure out your own dent of disobedience. Figure out your own dent of disobedience. Now, you might trying to figure out what do you mean by that. Even as I turned my notes into staff this week to print it up, they called me back and they said, are you sure you want dent of disobedience? And I said, yes, I do. And here's why. Okay, we all struggle in many different ways. You might struggle, Dennis might struggle one way, Gary might struggle another, Derry, Donna might struggle another way, and we all have our, what we call our own dent of disobedience, our certain um, proclivity to certain sins. Now here's what I mean by this, and, and again, for those of you who have heard this story, just sit back and catch up in a minute. But imagine an 18-wheeler, an 18-wheeler truck. On the back of this 18-wheeler are all these different cars. Now, the driver of this 18-wheeler is told that he can drive anywhere that he wants to go except this one area where there's this big, giant barrier that says, do not, enter, do not enter death ahead. So he drives everywhere. He takes it for, you know, just, I shouldn't go there. He drives everywhere, comes back, and one day he gets close to that, that barrier, and he sees someone coming out from it, just standing there. And he says, thinks to himself, wait a minute, if he can go there, why can't I? So he says, hey, did you go in there? He goes, yeah, it's not that big a deal. He goes, well, I want to go through there. He goes, well, go ahead. So he drives his truck through there and then doesn't realize that it's a cliff. And he drives off the edge. And all the cars in the back of that trailer roll out. Each one then 
One lands on its roof, one lands on its door, one land, breaks an axle. They all are dented in different ways. Now, the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 5, do I have this, this passage up here? Romans chapter 5? No? James 1? Yeah. Uh, that each one of us was, that driver of that, excuse me, the driver of that truck was Adam. When Adam sinned, when he fell, when he gave into that temptation, we were in Adam. The book of Romans chapter 5 says, sin entered the world through one man, and then therefore all have sinned. In other words, each one of us then has inherited a dent of disobedience, a proclivity to certain sins that seem natural to our flesh. This explains why some people struggle with gluttony, others with anorexia, some with alcoholism, some with drug addiction, some with homosexuality, some with um, pedophilia, some with bestiality. We all have a perversion in our, in our fallen state that we have a de- natural desire to, that we know is wrong in, in, uh, in our conscience, because God has shown us through his word and indicts each one of us in a different way. Some might struggle with lying, another might be with stealing. It could be lust. It could be anything, because each one of us has a dent of disobedience. Now, we are born with dents of disobedience, but as we indulge that dent, we get more dense. That's why sexual addiction always leads to more deviant behavior. Or someone who might have been molested as a child can turn to more deviant when they become as an adult. Now, it doesn't mean they always do, but that happens. We all have our own proclivity to certain sins, and we need to understand what those are. Because that's what the Bible says. These are the desires that we have, but they're fallen desires. And it can be perverted one way or another. That's why someone can have a beer and not get drunk, and the other person, they can't stop. Because their dent of disobedience is alcoholism. We all have that different dent of disobedience. That's why James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's the fallen desires that we have. The desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we can all do, I mean, all do whatever sin. Some people say, well, I'll never do that sin. In the right circumstance, you might. We have to be able to guard against it. We need to know what our struggles are before we can fight. Now, secondly, we need to make sure that we are identifying the lie. Every single sin comes wrapped in a lie. Without exception. Just like the the alcoholic. He believes that if I just take another drink, I'll be happy. Or the drug addict, I just get another hit. If I get another drag. Or if I, if I sleep with this person, I'll be happy. They'll stay with me and I'll be happy and I'll have security. It's an illusion. It's a lie. And you have now are guilty of idolatry because you have placed your happiness in this sin over the truth of God and what he has for you. If you identify the lie, you can, you can blow that away. Because Satan is a liar and the father of lies, according to John chapter 8, verse 44. And he masquerades even as an angel of light, according to 2 Corinthians eleven four. And that he seeks to turn us away. And he lures that hook of the world with the desires of our flesh that seems natural to us. See, that's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. That he made them question the goodness of God and made them think that God was keeping something good from them when the reality was he was keeping evil from them and pain and heartache. We have to identify the lie. Pornography is the biggest lie there is. Completely. I can't tell you how many people and stories that I've read of people that have been in this industry, they talk about how they were drugged, they were raped, they were abused, but they're smiling on camera. It's a complete lie. Do you know what they're doing with many men in Florida, in a certain county in Florida, they get arrested for prostitution? They make them come in and listen, I mean, picking up these girls that were prostitutes, they have to come in and listen to these girls give their stories, and many of them are broken because they realize they're daughters, they're mothers, that they hate what they do. And it removes the lie, because in the lie, it's a fantasy world. It's whatever I want it to be. It's great. They love me. It's a total lie. It's a lie. Identify the lie. Figure out your dent and identify the lie. That's what I see when people say, oh, you know, they're getting ready to have an adulterous relationship and they leave their spouse and their children, and they go, oh, this new younger version woman understands me. She doesn't understand you. Put her in the same situation with three kids having to deal with your garbage day in and day out. I guarantee she's going to respond the same way she did. Your wife understands you. That's why you hate it. 
Identifying the lie. Third, if we're going to find freedom, it requires us grasping grace as sufficiency. We thank God for grace. You know, the older that I get, the more that I marvel at grace. You know, the Bible says in Titus chapter 2, I'll throw this up there for you. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Or this, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's an amazing thing. If you've sinned and you've blown it in this arena and you feel like you're an addict, God's grace is sufficient for you. You can't earn your way out. God has already broken the chains for you, and he's giving you his grace. It is a free gift that he is giving you. His grace is sufficient for you. It abounds more and more. We can't out-sin grace. We shouldn't even try. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10 So to keep me from being conceited, this is the Apostle Paul talking, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Grasp grace's sufficiency. Fourthly, you have to remember that if the Spirit of God is within you, then you now have something that many of us don't like to take a hold of or realize, but we have self-control. How self-control. Do you know that if you're a Christian, God's Spirit says that you have the self-control? This is the ability to say no to sin and not have to do what sin does because Jesus' death has set us free from sin. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Lastly, we have to make sure that we are trusting in God's provision. God has given us his spirit, and he has promised within his word that whenever we face temptation, he will provide a way out. Now, that doesn't mean put yourself willingly into temptation. Don't be an idiot. I don't know how else to put it. Moranos, if we want to say it in Greek. Don't be a moranos. Trusting in his provision, as, it's, as the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, everybody else. We all have these temptations that we're susceptible to because we have a tendency to think our temptations are different. He's saying, no, no, no. It's common to everybody else. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And some of us might say, it was beyond my ability. No, it's because you realized and believed a lie, and you rationalized your sin and then gave in to it. You didn't try to fight it. You didn't identify the lie. You didn't think about God's grace. You didn't realize you had self-control and power to say no. You caved. You believed the lie. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Endure it. Now we got all those together. Figure out your dent. Identify the lie. Grasp, grasping grace is sufficiency. Having self-control. Trusting in God's provision. And they all come together to make a powerful fist to punch the devil in the face. Because that teaches us how to fight. God calls us to fight. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are spiritual. We have to fight that enemy within. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers of the 19th century, once made a parable like this. He said there was once a tyrant who summoned one of his subjects into his presence and ordered him to make a chain. The poor blacksmith, that was his occupation, had to go to work and forge the chain. When it was done, he brought it into the presence of the tyrant and was ordered to take it away and make it twice the length. He brought it again to the tyrant, and again he was ordered to double it. But he came when he had obeyed the order, and the tyrant looked at it and then commanded the servants to bind the man hand and foot with the chain he had made and cast him into prison. See, this is what the devil does with men. 
Mr. Spurgeon said. He makes them forge their own chains. And when he binds them, hand and foot, he'll cast them into outer darkness. My friends, this is just what drunkards, gamblers, blasphemers, this is just what every sinner is doing. But thank God we can tell them of a deliverer, the Son of God who has power to break every one of their fetters if they will only come to him. You might feel that you were chained because of your sin, but Christ offers you hope and forgiveness. Because he is the one that came to set the captives free and cut the chains that keep us enslaved to our sin. But we have to respond. We have to respond to his word and do what he says to do. And that is take that radical course of action to be in right relationship with God. Don't wait. Don't rationalize your sin. You're only hurting yourself. And eventually you might hurt those around you. David's sin just didn't hurt himself. It caused the death of the child that resulted from he and Bathsheba's union. It caused the death of her husband, and later on, it caused the suicide of her grandfather, Ahithophel, who was David's close counselor. He ended up revolting against David because of his sin with Bathsheba. Your sin has consequences, some right now, some you may not see till later. Some might be outward, some might be internal. But you were always, there is always a consequence for our sins. And eventually, it shows up in the greatest consequence of all, Death. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come to Him in freedom. Won't you call out? If you haven't yet called on the name of the Lord to be saved or to be delivered, I encourage you to. Don't continue on in your rebellion. Surrender to Him. Receive the gift of salvation that He makes available to all who call upon Him in truth. And He will save and transform you for His glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father, this is such a tough subject and one that has captured so many different individuals. Lord, I know my own struggles in this arena. And yet, Lord, I I can testify to your grace and your forgiveness and how you have helped deliver me. And Lord, I know it's still a daily battle that many of us face. Some are delivered, but many of us have to take up that cross every single day and die to the misdeeds of our sinful nature, learning live in the new life that has been afforded to us by the Spirit of God through your resurrection from the dead. And Lord, please purify us. Help us to not look like the world, but help us to be pure in our inner person. Help us to truly put to death the misdeeds of the body and to live in this new life that you've given unto us. And Lord, if we are contemplating adultery, not just this the spiritual act we're talking about, but the physical act, Lord, I pray you bring great conviction. Lord, I pray for all of those men and women in our congregation who have been battling this and still holding on. I pray you release the hounds of heaven that they might feel your love and your grace pressing in around them and their need to turn away from their sin, repent of it, and embrace you. Lord, let them not be deceived by the enemy any longer because he seeks to, to kill and destroy, to steal, kill, and destroy men and women's lives. So Lord, please... Bring freedom, bring grace as you have promised to do. And help them to experience a clean conscience and a second chance in your sight for what you have done on their behalf. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.